Talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talk a little bit about benefits. Yeah, benefits. Talking benefits. You are listening to Talking Benefits. Every month, we cover the top stories in retirement and healthcare, the latest benefits, hot topics, and whatever else the industry throws at us. I'm Justin Held. I'm Julie Stick. And I'm Kelly Colesrude. Now let's talk benefits. Welcome back, everyone. I'm again joined by Kelly Colesrude and Julie Stick, the true benefits nerds. Well, Wait see, a he minute. called us a nerd. I like that. <laughs> I know you don't. Kelly, but I like that we are considered benefit nerds, and, and I noticed that we're still going to call our segment here News from Nerds. Mm-hmm. Well, I prefer benefits enthusiasts, but whatever. I so think we're one, wearing her down. Yep. Yeah, as well. It's working. <laughs> All right. Do you want to kick it off, Julie? All right. Let's get started. News. 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 News from Nerds. Just a reminder that this segment is being recorded on May 23rd, 2018 at 9.30 a.m. Central Time. So our first story is about the Department of Labor's fiduciary or conflict of interest rule. Now, as we mentioned last time, a three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decided against the rule. The DOL had until April 30th to appeal, and they did not. This means the rule was vacated on May 7th. The DOL could appeal the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. If they do that, that needs to be done by June 13th. In the meantime, others stepped forward to intervene in this case. This means they would like to carry on the argument for the DOL rule, replacing the federal government. AARP asked, as did three states filing together, New York, Oregon, and California. The Fifth Circuit ruled that neither AARP nor the states can intervene. The states asked again on May 16th if they could intervene, and the court again said no on May 22nd. Now we're waiting for the court to issue a mandate enforcing their decision to vacate the rule. Meanwhile, on May 7th, the DOL issued a field assistance bulletin announcing a temporary enforcement policy for their rule. Because the department is reviewing the rule, they say it can still be relied upon for now. And they won't bring enforcement action against any firm that's trying to comply in good faith. Now, over at the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, on April 18th, they released their long-awaited guidance for broker-dealers and advisors. This guidance includes a best interest proposed rule, a proposed customer relationship summary, and a proposed interpretation for a standard of conduct. The guidance does not include a uniform fiduciary standard, nor does it define best interest. The SEC is collecting comments until August 7th. Experts are expecting to see changes as this guidance moves forward. Interesting. Yeah, we'll have to keep our eyes on that one. Well, of course, a podcast wouldn't be complete if there wasn't a healthcare story. Right. So, on Friday, May 11th, the Trump administration released a blueprint aimed at lowering the cost of prescription drugs. The key goals of the administration's plan include increasing competition, giving Medicare better tools to negotiate discounts, developing new incentives to lower list prices, and reducing out-of-pocket spending for patients. Now, to accomplish these goals or objectives, they've come up with several tactics, and a few of them include 
restructuring how pharmacy benefits managers, also known as PBMs, negotiate with drug makers and curtailing the infamous rebate system. Also, banning gag clauses on pharmacists that prevent them from telling patients about lower-cost alternatives not covered by their health plans. Another tactic is they hope to approve a greater number of similar but cheaper biologic products to treat cancer and other diseases. And another one that's getting quite a bit of attention is they want to make drug prices more transparent by requiring drug companies to disclose the list prices of drugs in TV ads. Oh, that's interesting. So that wraps up our news from nerds, or as I prefer to call it, news from benefits enthusiasts <laughs> for today. <laughs> News, 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 news from benefits enthusiasts. If you're a trustee, you need education, and the International Foundation has you covered. Check out the News Trustees Institute happening June 25th to the 27th, 2018 in Las Vegas. Learn everything you need to know to be the best you can be in your new role. Register today at ifebp.org slash newtrustees. The International Foundation has programming for seasoned trustees, too. Advanced Trustees and Administrators Institute also takes place in Las Vegas, June 25th through the 27th. You'll learn the latest industry trends and stay on top of legal and regulatory changes with sessions led by industry experts. Register today at ifebp.org slash trusteesadministrators. What benefit pros, benefit pros, benefit pros want to know, want to know. What benefit pros want to know. Okay, well, uh, if you all listened to our last episode, and I'm sure you did, we were joined by Ann Patterson, who is the Foundation's Communications and Social Media Associate. And I am really excited to announce that she is going to be joining us from now on on our episode. So welcome, Ann. Thanks, We're really Julie. thrilled to have you here. It's great to be here. So as a aspiring benefits nerd enthusiast, <laughs> I'm sure I will have a lot of questions for you, Justin and Kelly, as we go forward with these podcasts. So what topic are we diving into today? Well, for today's topic, we're going to build off of the second news item we talked about having to do with the administration's new plan to try to curtail drug costs. And we wanted to talk about drug costs and specifically specialty drugs. Um, according to a report issued by AARP, the retail price of specialty drugs increased by almost 10% in 2015, following nine years of increases. So the average annual cost for a chronic use specialty drug was more than $52,000 in 2015. And note, that's an average. So that means there are amounts way above that, as well as some below it. And that was a number of years ago already. I know we've all heard news stories about some of the drugs that are especially expensive, but are very important for people who have certain conditions. For example, hepatitis C drugs can run anywhere from $84,000 to $94,500 just per course of treatment. Now, that one is usually something that can kind of knock out hepatitis C, right? So, I mean, that's the, the flip side, right? I right, mean, it's a, a cure. Cost, but it's a cure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. 
for rheumatoid arthritis drugs, and that's kind of a chronic condition that goes on and on, um, it can cost forty-five to $60,000 per year. Mm-hmm. Another one that's expensive, multiple sclerosis drugs at $80,000 a year. Yeah. And the thing is, there are new drugs coming out every single day. I honestly, just yesterday, I read about a new drug that was approved by the FDA last week to prevent migraines. Now, that would be huge. It's huge, right? From that, in it's an injectable drug that will cost about sixty nine hundred dollars per year. Now, that's not as high as some of the other ones I mentioned. But if you presume that insurance and benefit plans will cover this new drug, the cost could add up quickly because it's estimated there are 37 million people in the U.S. who suffer from migraines. Wow. That'd be huge. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Kelly, why do you think just in the U.S. prescription drug costs are so high? Well, um, I looked into that a little bit, and I found a report that just came out in March of this year from the American Academy of Actuaries that said there's really two primary drivers uh, affecting prescription drug expenses, and they are changes in the utilization of drugs, including all the introduction of those new drugs that I mentioned, and then increases in the unit cost or cost per dosage. I mean, it's pretty basic. Either they use more, the demand is higher, or the cost per dosage is higher. And I would have to think that one of those major increases in utilization um, has to be those direct-to-consumer advertising that we see on TV and, and we hear on radio all the time. It's kind of well known that people see these commercials or listen to them and then they go to their doctor directly and ask for those uh, prescription drugs. Um, Julie, is this kind of a rare um, setup? I know that most, most countries don't allow this. <laughs> That's true. There's only about four countries uh, in the world that do allow direct-to-consumer drug advertising. Um, and it's, it's, you know, we may not like these ads. We're kind of, it seems sometimes like we're besieged by them, right? But drug companies keep doing them because they are seeing a really positive for them. Um, Nine to one are return on investment for these commercials, and I read that uh, the the amount that's spent on drug advertising like this was about six billion dollars in 2016. So obviously they're they're seeing, like you said, um, it it works. People mm-hmm. go into their doctor and they ask for a particular drug by name to help them with their condition. And we're not crazy for thinking that we're seeing these more and more. I just read in the New York Times, like earlier this year, they came out with an article that said, compared to 2012, these commercials are up 65%. Wow, 65%. Right. So, <laughs> Kelly, you were just saying this morning you were watching the news. Right. Um, usually, I will confess, I, I don't watch a lot of live TV. I try to record things and fast forward through <laughs> the commercials. But when I'm watching news in the morning, right. um, it just plays as I'm having breakfast and getting ready for work. And just this morning, I saw one I hadn't seen before that was promoting a particular drug that's in that's injected to help get rid of wrinkles. And the interesting thing about it is it was strictly targeted to men. Mm-hmm. And that's I know that, yeah, that's something we've c- certainly heard about for women for many years. Sure. But they're thinking a there's market. a new market out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what do you think is kind of one of the craziest types of ads? The one that always just, I, I 
cannot believe, but you know, the, those ones where you see the couple and they're sitting in bathtubs <laughs> and each of them is, is has their own bathtub and they're out in nature, mm -hmm. like watching a sunset or something. I mean, I, I'm sorry, do you know anyone who It's a thing. A it's, a, it's a new trend. <laughs> it must be. No, <laughs> it can't be. I know. It's, it's like, so wow, goofy looking. Interesting. <laughs> exactly. And making the link sometimes between the images they show and the condition or the benefit that you'd receive from the drug are, mm -hmm. are kind of a stretch. I remember there's one for a weight loss drug where it's, it's these, and they're all women dressed in like interpretive dance costumes. <laughs> I'm th talking Martha Graham here. <laughs> and um, and they're, they're jumping up and saying, I'm hungry, or ooh, chocolate, French fries. I mean, <laughs> it's just bizarre. I mean, it makes me hungry, sort of, to hear it, but I think that's the wrong effect. <laughs> well, you remembered the commercial, though. True, and that is the key with right. with commercials, isn't that's it? Are <laughs> And sometimes they use celebrities. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Isn't Cindy Lauper yeah, talking on, and, yeah. on a skin condition right. or something like that? And then like there's that, the or? golfers who are, I can't even remember what they were, drug they were, was it arthritis or something, but like Phil Mickelson and and uh, Arnold Palmer were in some. And right. so, yeah, they mm -hmm. catch your attention, I guess. So. Yeah. I'm always surprised at the number of commercials with um, mucus, cartoon mucus, with a New York accent, watching television <laughs> or driving a car. Um, it always well, sure, why not? Always gets me. <laughs> well, okay, and then to top it all off, they always have to end up with all, listing all the side effects. Well, I mean, why I, on earth would you want to take any drug if you actually heard and listened to all those side effects? <laughs> Ooh. Well, you hope that it won't happen to you, I guess. Right, mm -hmm. right. Yeah, so. Well, anyway, the same report from the Academy of American Academy of Actuaries did mention a few other factors they think um, contribute to the high costs for drugs in the U.S., and that includes delays in introducing generics. As we know, brand name drugs are always more expensive, and um, the longer a a pharmaceutical company can hang on to that brand name and not let the generic start entering the market, um, they make more money, and but we as consumers um, end up paying more. Um, another one was the higher cost inflation in the U.S. for pharmaceuticals relative to other nations. And I know there's a lot of discussion about how other countries just aren't paying as much for their drugs. Sometimes um, if they have a national health system, they those systems can negotiate better prices with the drug companies and um, they pass on that savings then to um, the patients. Also, the compensation of numerous stakeholders throughout the pharmacy supply chain in the U.S. There are lots of people in between, so that can add to the cost. And I also found a different report from the Commonwealth Fund that mentioned some other cost drivers that are related. They cited high launch prices and high annual increases for patented brand name drugs, as I mentioned before, a lack of robust competition, also a lack of information about comparative effectiveness of drugs. So if um, consumers were better informed or the, the people who prescribe the drugs are better informed. Lack of price transparency, it's kind of a complicated mystery how it those... Is. We don't know how much 
thing like costs, costs are. We just don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. And limitations on price negotiating powers for government programs. And I know I mentioned that that's one of the things the Trump administration plan is hoping to give Medicare, for example, more negotiating tools. And then finally, as I mentioned, with the lack of robust competition, some of that is that drug manufacturers can take advantage of their natural monopolies if they're the only one selling a drug. And sometimes it sadly leads to price gouging. Mm-hmm. So those are a, a, just a number of things that can all contribute to the high costs of drugs. Yeah, Kelly, uh, sort of piggybacking off that uh, concept of having a monopoly and price gouging because of it reminds me of a recent 60 Minutes story from earlier this month. That uh, story highlighted the city of Rockford, Illinois. They self-funded their health care costs for their 1,000 employees and their dependents. And the story highlighted uh, in 2015, two children of uh, these Rockford employees uh, were treated with a drug that's been on the market since 1952, and it's used to treat um, infantile spasms, a pretty, pretty serious condition. Um, they found out that the cost for their two cases was close to half a million dollars um, for just those two cases. Um, in 2001, the same drug that they used sold for about $40 a vial, and today uh, that vial costs more than $40,000, wow. which is an increase of 100,000%. Yeah, And uh, because of these costs, the city hired an attorney to sue the manufacturer of that drug for price fixing. And then didn't they find the same or the equivalent to the drug in Canada for like $33? 30, $33, yep. It's crazy. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, we know what happened in this instance for Rockford, but what's the bigger picture? Is there anything, I guess, what what do these rising price costs mean for plant sponsors? Well, it's estimated that overall prescription drug spend can be about 15% to 20% of the total employer-provided health plan costs. Um, and then specialty drug prescriptions will be issued only to about 1% to 2% of participants on average. So it's not a lot of your participants that need specialty drugs. But uh, flip side of that, their cost can account for about one-third to half of an employer's entire prescription drug spend. So if we could take a step back, how would you define specialty drugs? Like well, on a high level. Well, and that's kind of the challenge because there really isn't one standard definition okay. in the industry. Um, most of the definitions that are out there talk more about some of the components surrounding this type of drug. So, for example, high cost, of course, uh, they're typically used to treat rare and or complex chronic conditions. They're difficult or um, unusual ways to actually administer them to the patient. For example, they're injectable or they can be infused or they can be inhaled. They usually require some sort of special handling or storage and they're often um, scientifically, biologically engineered. But this lack of a standard definition for this type of drug does contribute to the challenge because pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs and others in the industry categorize these drugs differently from from one PBM to the other. Okay. So you had me at biologically engineered because I love nerding out about science, as you guys know. Does anyone know how that component works for specialty drugs? the, The biotechnology advances have led to the development of these drugs, basically. Um, They work at the cellular level Mm. to change the course of a disease, and they sometimes even cure the disease, as we mentioned with the hep C C drugs. 
whereas other drugs often are just treating the symptoms of a condition. Some of the drugs can be genetically based. That is, they're created just to work for only a specific person and their genetic makeup. So as a result, these drugs can be extremely effective, and sometimes they're the only treatment that really exists for a rare disease. Okay. Is that, I guess, part of the reason why providing coverage is so challenging for these drugs? Right. As we mentioned earlier, challenges include the lack of a consistent definition and a standard categorization among PBMs and others in the industry. And so that leads to some challenges with contract terms with PBMs and others. So their contract terms and discounts on specialty drugs can vary from one to the other. And some drugs have limited distribution through only one or two specialty or specific PBMs, they have exclusive contracts. So they're the only ones who can provide this particular drug. And this can be complicated for an employer plan sponsor, and it's also expensive to you if they're not your PBM. Okay. And of course, there's the high cost that surrounds these drugs. Right, because they're so special. Mm -hmm. What are other ideas for employers and plan sponsors for cost savings? Yeah, there's actually a big list of uh, actions that employers and plan sponsors are taking to uh, curb costs. Mm -hmm. Um, Julia, do you want to get into the uh, administration portion of it? Sure. Um, As I mentioned earlier, that uh, these drugs are usually kind of um, complicated to administer. They're either injected or they're inhaled or they're infused. And so um, one thing that a a plan sponsor or employer can do is arrange for there to be a change where these drugs are administered. And they call that the site of care. So having uh, your employee, the patient, go to a clinic or to their doctor's office increases the costs, of course, because they're there. It might be possible that the drug could be self-administered at home, or if someone needs to administer it to the patient, maybe that healthcare professional could come to the patient's home and deliver it there, and that might be a little bit less cost. Well, and another big tactic to use, or an important tactic to use, I should say, is to really review the contract and conditions you have with your pharmacy benefit manager or PBM. There are lots of things to look out for. One, you should just look for inconsistent definitions in the contract and make sure that generic drugs are not included in the definition of specialty. Also, you should be sure to make sure that the PBM passes all the pharmacy rebates onto your plan. Often, some of the rebate amount stay with the PBM. Also, avoid spread contracts, and that's where the PBM reimburses the pharmacy less than what your plan was charged. Also, compare your PBM's discounts with those offered by other PBMs. You know, it never hurts to shop around and try to gather as much information as you can. And then make sure your PBM is stocking drugs with lower average wholesale prices. Um, We recently deployed our 2018 employee benefits survey and got some great data about what our membership is doing to curb some of these uh, um, escalating costs. Uh, Just starting with uh, pharmacy benefit managers, use of PBMs is very common in our membership. Um, Almost two-thirds of our members use this. So if you're not using one, something definitely to explore. 
Okay, um, another way that maybe uh, specialty drug costs can be held down is to refer participants uh, for your plan to patient and co-payment assistance programs. Uh, through that, they might be able to receive some financial help. And these types of programs are offered by pharmaceutical companies and nonprofit groups and also state governments. Another approach is to establish a prior authorization program. Many plans do this for their medical benefits, but you can also set that up for your drug plan and specifically for specialty drugs. And if you already have one of those programs, you know, it never hurts to do a review and make sure that you're using the most current techniques. And so these programs involve having a pharmacist develop or review the specified clinical criteria for coverage for your plan. So just to make sure that what you're providing um, makes sense in the current marketplace. And also, um, it never hurts to conduct an audit to make sure that the authorizations were documented and that they contain accurate diagnoses and prognoses, and that approved medications are really medically necessary and the best course of action. Mm -hmm. And again, chiming in uh, to hear from our members, uh, a little bit less than half, 48%, uh, utilize prior authorization or utilization management. So. For prescription drugs. Correct. Okay. Yep. Another alternative uh, for cost management for this area is to encourage the use of lower cost alternatives. For example, there may be some lower cost options that would be as effective as some of the higher cost specialty drugs uh, that we're hearing so much about and see if there's a generic or a biosimilar or uh, some other equally effective alternative that might exist and you can uh, make sure that that particular medication is prescribed and authorized through your prior authorization program. If you uh, have a step therapy program, you want to make sure that's being utilized or you might want to consider adding a step therapy program if you don't have one and that would mean that the patient would need to try a lower cost but effective medication first to see if it works before they are uh, prescribed something at a more high cost. And again, similarly, uh, about 50% of our survey respondents uh, currently use uh, step therapy. Great. Um, another option is to establish higher copays or a tiered formulary level for specialty drugs. Uh, another option, sometimes formularies can exclude particular specialty medications from uh, what they cover, but to caution about this, uh, that may decrease your participants' adherence to a prescribed uh, drug regimen. Mm -hmm. And the use of a drug formulary, uh, very common amongst our membership. Uh, over 70% utilize a formulary. Uh, and kind of hearkening back to those, uh, those tiered levels, um, cautioning tiers, uh, very common amongst our membership. 50% um, utilize three tiers, 35% utilize four tiers, and we even have a small percentage, 7%, that utilize five tiers within their prescription drug plans. Okay, another approach is to implement a care management program, and that means that a care manager or a professional will work with participants to make sure they're taking and um, dispensing and storing their specialty medications correctly. Um, it's all about patient education. 
um, if these are very expensive drugs, you want to be sure they're, they're not wasted by storing them improperly or that they're administered correctly and that patients stick to the prescribed regimen so that the drug can be most effective mm-hmm. and you get the most bang for the, all the bucks you're spending. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This obviously wouldn't work for all plans, but another idea for cost saving, what have you heard about the idea of prescription drug tourism? Yeah, you're right. It doesn't work for all plans, but some employers are finding that it's cheaper to send one of their uh, participants in their plan to another country where the drug that they need is less expensive. And sometimes it can be so much less expensive that they can afford to, to pay for the airfare and the hotel and the meals for several days. Uh, for them to be somewhere like Costa Rica or something. And while they're there, they get their injectable drug. And it just really kind of depends on the plan and the, the cost of the drug and if the patient is willing to travel and the like. Well, and related to that and tapping other countries, a kind of a new area are international mail-order specialty drug programs. I think you've all heard of mail-order drug programs where you get the drugs sent to you in the mail in whatever prescription amount that you get, and it's done automatically, and, and the plan can save a little money by setting these up typically. But um, there could be additional cost savings for specialty drugs if they're priced dr- quite a bit cheaper in another country, and then they can be mailed from those countries to the U.S. Now, of course, you'd want to be sure that um, you're getting the drugs from a country that has the same or even higher standards and regulations than the U.S. for the safety feature. Mm -hmm. And this approach isn't without uh, some controversy and, you know, may be looked at more closely as the Trump administration explores ways to control healthcare costs and specifically drug costs. Mm-hmm. Another option might be to consider restricting or denying coverage for high-cost specialty drugs that have been developed for rare diseases or conditions, and these are known as orphan or super orphan conditions. So for example, what they consider orphan conditions is that there are fewer than 200,000 people with this given medical condition and super orphan condition fewer than 15,000 people with a given medical condition. So those drugs, because they impact a smaller number of people, but it's a very serious condition that they're treating, uh, very super high cost for these drugs. Yeah, Julie, this uh, sort of uh, harkens back to that 60 minutes story, that that condition that was referenced in that story was a super orphan condition. Right, Mm -hmm. right. And and interestingly, how that huge escalation in the price of that drug from when it came on the market, you said in 1952 or something to the present. And yeah, this just all, all of this, everything that we're talking about today harkens back to the whole idea that we're talking, we're certainly talking about costs and trying to keep costs down, but there's the human element to this too. Um, you know, these, these children with this dreadful disease, mm-hmm. you're talking about how much money it costs to, to make their lives better. Right. So, Another cost-saving idea, I know, Kelly, if you're willing to nerd out again about science, <laughs> um, so pharmacogenetics, which is the study of how genes affect a person's response to drugs, how do specialty drugs kind of play into this, this science? Well, there is actually a, 
a really close connection between specialty drugs and pharmacogenetics. And that pharmacogenetics is a relatively new field that combines pharmacology, which is, of course, the science of drugs, and genomics, which is the study of genes and their functions, to develop effective, safe medications and doses that will be tailored to a specific person's genetic makeup. So there's really two big advantages of doing this. Number one, it improves the prescription drug safety and avoids adverse drug reactions because you it's look made at for you. Yes, it's You're made not for trying you. a bunch of different things, hoping exactly. that it'll work. Mm-hmm. And number two, it determines the most effective drug for each specific person. So it's a huge step forward going from the previous practice of adjusting and experimenting mm. with different medications and different dosages to get the best response. Sure. So it's a very interesting field that's evolving. Of course, there is cost associated with doing genetic testing and tailoring drugs. However, sometimes in the long run, it can save money. Mm-hmm. Well, and one last cost management method I'll throw out there for us to talk about is the idea of carving out and self-funding specialty drugs. So maybe you take that specialty drug function out of your bigger medical plan or your bigger prescription drug plan and uh, deal with that separately. And you can buy stop-loss coverage for just that particular aspect of your plan. Already over 20% uh, of our responding organizations are already setting special limits for for specialty drugs and uh, biotech drugs. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that kind of wraps up our discussion about specialty drugs and some techniques to consider. I mean, specialty drugs are really a challenging piece in the healthcare benefit puzzle, if you will. We hope this discussion has given you some ideas to help you understand and maybe manage these costs. It's important to remember there is no easy answer and some of these techniques may not be appropriate for your particular plan or maybe there are even rules and laws where some of these things um, wouldn't be allowed. So it's good to know about that. Mm Well, and as Kelly mentioned, I just want to leave you with this thought that as with anything involving benefit design, communication, or education changes to your plan, please be mindful of your employee population. There is no one thing that works for all organizations, so consider what will work best for your employees, and always be mindful of the laws and restrictions that may exist in your state. Uh, Any type of changes that you make to your plan, make sure to talk them over with your benefit consultant and definitely uh, reach out to your attorney as well and talk with them. And if anyone is looking to take a deeper dive into prescription drugs and prescription drug cost management, uh, the International Foundation has a wide variety of resources, uh, starting with the Benefits Transition Tracker section of our website. Uh, There's a whole area dedicated to prescription drug resources, so make sure to check that out. For those of you who are looking for sort of a deep dive, uh, we have an e-learning course which provides an overview of prescription drugs. Also a recent webcast from earlier this year on workplace efforts to prevent prescription drug abuse, which was also very popular, very well received. And hot off the presses, our June 2018 issue of Benefits Magazine 
has a article about managing prescription drug costs and how to work with your PBM and sort of hold them accountable. So make sure to check out that and stay tuned for any future resources, including that employee benefits survey that I had mentioned. We also have some blogs coming up and a few uh, sessions at some of our upcoming conferences as well. Also, if you've tried any specialty drug cost management techniques that have worked for your organization, we'd love to hear from you, and we'll share that in our next podcast uh, next month. So you can drop us an email at podcast at ifebp.org. So with that, thank you so much for joining us and for listening in today. We'll be back next month for more Benefits Fun. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. And subscribe to it in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you prefer, so that our episodes will automatically appear on your mobile device. Today's program is copyrighted in 2018 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, all rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel.